Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and I'm joined on this episode by Jerry Dias, president of Unifor, Canada's largest private sector union. Now, Jerry was a recent witness at our industry committee hearings where we focused on the potential collusion as between our national grocery chains here in Canada in cutting pandemic pay for our essential workers. So we look at that issue. We also discuss NAFTA renegotiations and the Liberal government's record on labor. Jerry, thanks for joining me. Pleasure as always, Mike. Absolutely. You're doing a heck of a job. And by the way, Nathaniel, thank you very much for getting the motion passed in order to force the CEOs of Sobeys, Metro, and Loblaws to come to Ottawa to justify or to attempt to justify, <laughs> attempt to justify. Uh, why they removed the pandemic day. And it was an attempt at best. I'm curious what you thought when you were watching those hearings, because I was surprised, I got to say, I expected them to deny communication as between one another, and then to hear from the CEOs of Metro, Sobeys, and Loblaw, and unfortunately, we didn't have the CEO of Save on Foods there, but all of these CEOs communicated directly with one another about the prospect of ending this modest, modest wage top-up of $2 an hour, so-called pandemic pay for essential workers, and were you surprised? Well, I really wasn't surprised that they came clean because it would have been more dangerous for them if, in fact, that they would have lied because the government would have had the ability to subpoena the phone records, uh, to subpoena the records of those that are close to them. So it would have been fatal. But if you actually analyze what they said, these are CEOs and companies that I will argue probably don't spend a lot of time communicating because they're rivals. But on the pandemic pay, they made sure that they talked, sent emails. Like, the coincidence is rather ridiculous for them to try to say it's anything else, but, you know, it was just the way it unfolded. Nobody buys that. Like, there's nobody on the committee, I would suggest, frankly, not even them. I mean, if, if those three CEOs were made out of wood, their nose would have been a foot long. <laughs> it, it is shocking to see multimillionaire CEOs get in touch with one another about ending a modest increase in pay for their lowest paid employees? Look, between the three CEOs, their total compensation in 2019 was over $17 million. $17 million. And when you start taking away $2 an hour from people, for example, minimum wage in Saskatchewan is about eleven thirty-five dollars an hour. A $2 increase is significant. If you look at their employees in Newfoundland, minimum wage, I think, is about eleven fifty, a little bit more than that. So it is horrendous when you start talking about them being cavalier about the $2 pandemic day. But even more naive is the fact that they're basing it on the fact that somehow the pandemic is over and things are back to normal. Today, they would likely vote for Donald Trump if they lived in the United States, because the three of them and Donald Trump are the only people that actually believe that the pandemic is over. <laughs> well, mixed messaging, too, because the CEO of Lobla, Ms. Davis, said, well, this was only about appreciation. This had nothing to do with risk. And then Mr. Medline for Sobeys was very clear to say, well, these workers were on the front lines. They were facing additional risks. And, and he argued that that was part of the reason they were they were paying the additional top up. So they, they had their messaging straight when they said independent time and time again, but they didn't have their messaging straight otherwise. Nathaniel, let me run this by you. If you were making $11.32 an hour in Saskatchewan, or if you were making $14 an hour in Ontario, would you collect $500 a week in CERB, or would you put your life on the line? If you're making $11.32 an hour working part-time hours, would you go to work and risk your life for staying at home? Staying at, staying at home sounds a lot more appealing. Yeah, well, you know what? It's, 
it was dangerous. It's dangerous. It still is dangerous. Um, we have about 18 of our members in, uh, in the uh, major grocery chains right now that have tested positive. Um, we have about 20 in their warehouses, and that's just my unit. Right. So overall, the numbers are significant. Just a few days ago, I think on Thursday or Friday of last week, uh, two workers in Windsor that work in, a, I believe, a Loblaws contract to COVID-19. So it's hardly, you know, as if the pandemic is in our rear headlights. As a matter of fact, everybody's waiting for the second wave. And if you listen uh, to the scientists and those in the know, if you listen to the medical profession, uh, they're saying to brace for the worst. And, and that's what we should be doing. So this was all about greed. There's no way of spinning it. They made over $2 billion in profits in 2019. Loblaws themselves made over a billion. Uh, their quarter, first quarter results for the three grocery chains were higher than in 2019. Their second quarter results during the height of the pandemic will even be higher. So there's no justification that somehow that there's an economic argument because we know that's not true. And certainly if their best argument is, well, you know, things are heading back to normal, then we know that that's sheer nonsense. They should be ashamed of themselves. It was galling to me for two reasons and what brought me to move the motion in the first place. One, the timing of it was suspicious. And I honestly didn't expect them to be so cavalier about communicating with one another about ending this top up for their frontline workers. But there they were making phone calls, sending courtesy emails to their competitors. The second galling thing, though, is I have been given reason, I think many Canadians have been given reason in the course of this pandemic to rethink, reconsider and and really question how we pay our essential workers in our society that I don't think we pay, whether it's in our nursing homes or our grocery stores, we have not been paying our essential workers enough. And on the way outside of this, I was hopeful that we would have that thoughtful conversation about improving the working conditions, improving the pay of these essential workers. And then you see how quickly these major chains that are raking in record profits, how quickly they move back to the status quo in pursuit of dollars. It's, it's, it's maddening, actually. Well, I think there's been a real wake-up call for Canadians. First of all, we realize how over-reliant we are on other nations for our basic safety. The fact that we were scrambling and still are scrambling for personal protective equipment is an embarrassment. Um, the fact that we allowed the, our personal protective equipment to stock to be outdated, we threw it out. Uh, the mass giveaway of our personal protective equipment to China when, when COVID-19 first hit. But the broader debate is really about the outsourcing of our economy. Here we are as a nation, so rich in natural resources and raw materials, yet we have so little control of our own fate. So that was question number one and lesson, I would say, number one. But lesson number two was who really stepped up? Who were the COVID heroes? Who really are essential workers? Because we spent a lot of time talking about the gig economy. You know, you've got all your bankers, you have your Bay Street rollers, you have all of the academics, for a lack of a better choice of words. So you have those who are at the top of the food chain where people are saying that's where the economy is heading as you look at the changes in technology. And people argued that the manufacturing jobs and those types of jobs, they're obsolete. So let's take a look. First of all, and I'll get to the essential workers. So who made the personal protective equipment? The manufacturing sector that had the technical ability to, to react. So take a look at your General Motors, your Fords, your Martin Rias, your Hiram Walkers, your, I can walk through the list of the manufacturing facilities 
that had the technology just to go bang, we can do this. So without the manufacturing expertise, the ability to react, uh, we would have been in even deeper trouble than we're in now. But then you'd look at who was really essential. And I think about our members that work in long-term care facilities, nursing homes, retirement homes, hospitals, those in the healthcare sector who are so underappreciated. I think about workers in long-term care facilities that out of greed, they really deregulated the industry, especially here in Ontario, that has led to the creation of far more for-profit long-term care facilities than there ever was. Yeah, that you have Mike Harris gut the sector and allow for greater private sector activity. He now is profiting from the rules that he put in place while we've seen lives lost because of the rules that he's put in place. And we've seen lives lost because of a lack of staffing. And instead of money being spent on the, the staff and the labor that we need to ensure people live in dignity, we've seen money flow to shareholders. Mike Harris makes a quarter of a million dollars a year as the chair at Chartwell Long-Term Care Facilities. He also has millions in shares. Should have hauled him to the committee. <laughs> and he is the premier that deregulated the industry, that led to even more uh, for-profit long-term care facilities. But it shows the type of conservative mentality. It really shows that the argument that, well, for-profit or private industry is much more better than public, which is sheer nonsense because we know that if you take a look at the ratio of debts, it's much higher in for-profit long-term care facilities than publicly owned. So we know that the for-profit model has failed. But then you also take a look at what they've done. They've made sure that the industry is predominantly part-time, non-standard, casual workers. Why? So that they can pay them much less, don't give them benefits. In the non-union long-term care facilities, majority of the workers are, are making minimum wage. PSWs are so poorly paid that they're leaving the industry. And when the pandemic hit and the crisis hit, so many had left. Why? Because of a lack of respect, lack of pay, terrible hours. And then obviously about a month into the pandemic, they went, oh my gosh. One of the problems within the long-term care facilities is that these workers are going to two, three homes and they're transporting the crisis. Well, no kidding. When people are forced to work in two, three long-term care facilities just to pay their mortgage and buy food for their families, then we know we're in a crisis situation. So not everybody knows what the problem is. But are people going to do things about it? And I will argue that as an elected politician, uh, the role of the federal government has to be very vocal, and you have been, and Justin has been talking about it. But the bottom line is, this is a time for all governments to roll up their sleeves and start talking about minimum standards, because we know what the issues are. We've been saying for years, Nathaniel, we did a thing in 2017, we called it the six-minute challenge. Workers have six minutes in the morning in long-term care facilities to go into the room, get the patient out of bed, get them in the bathroom, have them use the washroom, brush their teeth, comb their hair, rinse them, get them to the breakfast table. And that's if everybody's at work. But we know that each and every day, every long-term care facilities is running short because of absenteeism. So we've got a crisis. People have died as a result of lack of action. Governments will survive and be defeated based on how they handle this crisis because nobody's buying the argument anymore that we need to save a few pennies. And we see the direct consequences in long-term care homes as a result of the growth of precarious work. But it's not only in long-term care homes. We obviously, you identified when you testified at our committee in advance of the CEOs that I think it was 90% of 
grocery store frontline workers are part time, which means they have no set schedules. I've received emails, frustrated, exasperated emails from grocery store workers saying they're cutting the pay in the midst of this pandemic. The risks are still there. My anxiety is still there. And by the way, I've always had anxiety because I don't have a set schedule. I don't have benefits. And we've seen this growth of precarious work at the bottom but no comparable loss of benefits or earnings at the top. You know, you've been doing this a long time. So, and I know much of this work is provincial, but how do we as governments ensure that we are pushing back against that growth of precarious work and supporting people on the front line? So let me give you an example. The federal government, for starters, should pass a minimum wage law because they don't. And I understand that that will be for federally regulated employers, but it's a message. But we also need to change the system because we need to understand that there's a correlation between minimum wage and a living wage. So let me give you an example. In Ontario, a living wage is $22 an hour. So we have argued that based on individual provinces, the minimum wage should be 60% of the living wage. So in Ontario, that would be almost $16 an hour. So right off the bat, if minimum wage was tied into a living wage, minimum wage workers in Ontario, wages would go up almost $2 an hour. And we know that there's one and a half million Canadians right now that are at minimum wage. And the majority of them are between the ages of 15 and 24. What the startling piece of it, Nathaniel, is that 20% of all workers making minimum wage are between 34 and 55. Those are prime earning years. And a fifth are still on minimum wage. So we've got a problem with the system. If you look at Saskatchewan, the uh, living wage is about, is over, it's about 18 80 an hour. Minimum wage is, I think, 11.32. So if you do a correlation, then that makes sense that if this is literally the cost of living within your province, then this makes sense. And so it's about greed. So I listen to Galen Weston. Let's you know, go back to the grocery store workers with his $8.7 billion worth of wealth saying, geez, you know, I would support government initiatives for a living <laughs> wage. What a hypocrite. It made me laugh. It's this idea of force me to do what I already believe in as if... Yeah. Dollarama is able to extend pandemic pay until the end of August. Target in the United States says they're going to pay all their employees a minimum of $15 an hour American. Galen Weston with billions of dollars who claims to believe in a progressive living wage can't find the pennies to pay people a minimum and set a standard for the industry to say, come work for me and push other competitors, if, if he truly believes in it, to push other competitors to, to match. It, it is... You use the word hypocrisy, and when I put that same word to the Loblaw CEO, Sarah Davis, she did not have a very good answer. No, she, how can you justify it? You have to look at what people do and what they say. Galen Weston reported to his board when the Wynn government was enacting minimum wage changes, moving it up to $15 an hour over time. And he argued the negative impact that it was going to have on profits and the price of food. So you can't say to your shareholders and to the board that minimum wage hikes will cause problems and then say he would be in support of government recommendations and government initiatives that go in recognizing the importance of, of a living wage. 
You just can't speak out of both sides of your mouth. I guess if you're worth billions, you can speak out of any side of the mouth you want. But he should be ashamed of himself. Yeah, well, uh, no, no doubt a PR stunt. You, you claim to believe in a progressive living wage while you are cutting wages for your essential workers <laughs> in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, it, yeah. yeah it makes you, you shake your head. When it comes to benefits, there has been, I think, greater talk in our platform. We talked about the gig economy and ensuring that there were there was parental leave for people whether or not they were eligible for EI and this idea of benefits outside of the EI system or portable benefits is this an area that your union has looked at and focused on of course look the EI system is completely broken uh, Stephen Harper's conservative government were the best at stealing EI money or UI money to balance the budgets here is money paid for by the workers, paid for by the employers, that they would steal to balance the budget. So we already know that it's probably about, it's less than, I think, about 35% of all workers that actually apply for EI actually receive it. And we also know that the most vulnerable employees, part-time, precarious, part-time workers, I think those that qualify that actually uh, receive it are probably in the low 20s. So those that need it the most are those that are least likely to receive it. So the system has been changed and changed and knocked down and knocked down and knocked down to make sure that people don't qualify. So it needs a complete overhaul. This isn't a situation uh, where you start talking about minor tinkering in the program. It needs a major overhaul. I mean, first of all, the bar on, on minimum hours in which to qualify, you got to change that. you got to lower that bar significantly. It's not as if workers somehow want part-time precarious work. They want full-time jobs. People want good-paying jobs. They want to be able to feed their kids. They want to be able to provide for their kids. They want to be able to provide affordable housing. Everybody wants the same thing. They just want to, they just want to do well. Nobody wants two, three jobs. Nobody wants to do this. People want jobs with pensions and benefits. I mentioned the idea in this pandemic and the realization that we aren't paying our essential workers enough. The other realization, certainly when you see millions of Canadians lose their jobs, our social safety net wasn't fit for purpose and employment insurance wasn't fit for purpose. We, you're right about the tinkering. That's not going to be enough. That we do need a, a massive overhaul. Ensure that there are income supports for people that are going through difficult times that have lost their employment, and ensure that people are looked after. Because we, we can't have a situation like we've seen in the last number of months, where a government has to, on the fly, develop programs to step in because our our existing infrastructure, so you know, uh, support systems and social safety net. Ha haven't provided the, the necessary supports. Look, CERB was created on a die because of the inability to process the unemployment insurance claims. It's pretty straightforward. So the government's initiative to get money in people's pockets quickly was a very, very good initiative. But one of the things that I'm going to be candid with you that's frustrating me is the fact that under CERB, not only are some workers that would have been eligible for the maximum EI benefits are, are having a $73 a week cut in pay, but negotiated supplementary unemployment insurance plans, which we have in our collective agreements, are not eligible under CERB. So I have our members in the auto industry, shipbuilding industry, I can walk through so many different industries, some in the healthcare sector, who are out hundreds of dollars a week because the employers are not eligible to play the SUV benefits. And I've spoken to Bill Morneau about this. I've spoken to the prime minister. I've spoken to everybody about this. And somehow the rationale is, well, we don't want it to create 
an incentive for employers to lay people off and put them on SERP. And then, you know, just all they have to pay is SUB. It's such a nonsense argument because now employers can lay people off and they don't even have to pay the SUB. Exactly. So we got members who are out hundreds and hundreds of dollars a week. Hundreds. And it doesn't make any sense. And it's, it doesn't cost the government one nickel. Not a nickel. So anyway, so little things like that I find frustrating. But overall, look, I'm, that's a problem. It's a problem for me personally. It's a problem for many of our members. But overall, you know, the whole issue of the discussions about fixing the wage subsidy, the whole, you know, ideas between extending the programs. I mean, we need to do that because ultimately if you cancel SERP tomorrow, I mean, how many people won't even qualify for EI? Then what happens? So we need to figure out um, how we move forward during this difficult process. I think that's right. We need to continue these programs, although I think we ought to redesign and adjust them to reflect the realities and the challenges. And so the, the one you've identified, I, I think, too, it no longer makes sense to have a, a harsh cutoff of $1,000 where you lose your benefit if you're in 1001 It should be an EI type system or a GIS type system where you earn a dollar and maybe it gets clawed back 50 cents on the dollar. So there's always an incentive to go out and, and earn and workers are, are then, they've got a baseline level of, of income protection, but they can go off and earn more without worrying about pinching their pennies around the thousand dollar line. So there is work to be done to fix that on going forward basis. And I do hope that the serves extended in that redesign fashion uh, into December along with the wage subsidy. You, you mentioned being supportive of the wage subsidy and CERB and, and the government's action to, to step into this crisis. When you look at the government's actions since 2015 and assessing the liberal record overall be supportive, would you point to areas where we could improve and where if you were in my shoes, you would be pushing harder? Well, on the pandemic, I just raised some issues with you over the the restrictions under the uh, CERB and obviously, as we're talking about today, the whole issue of the wage subsidy, uh, it can't just be 75%. There's too many vulnerable sectors, including the airline sector, I can hospitality in general, uh, where the 75% restriction and then saying to the employers that they have to pay the different premiums on benefits, pensions, and a whole host of things. I think we need to be more aggressive if, if we're serious and we're getting people back to work. But overall, I will argue that uh, I remember meeting with Justin prior to him uh, defeating Harper. And the discussion was really about labor law reform. Uh, Harper imposed three set bills, 377 and 525, which were really aimed against the labor movement. And Justin committed and sent it to me in writing that when elected prime minister, he would immediately repeal the legislation. And he did that. He kept his word. And he was really the first prime minister in quite a while that talked about the importance of the labor movement, um, the importance of a civil society and a strong labor movement, um, talking about the importance of unions and workers and, and, you know, working conditions and health and safety. And, you know, when he repealed uh, Stephen Harper's rollback of the CPP uh, from 65 to 67, and then he brought it back to 65, that was incredibly progressive. So, the bottom line is there's a much more open door environment today for people, I will argue, than under the Harper regime. You know, the conservatives always pat themselves on the back about those that are being the most responsible and stirring the economy. But if you look at Harper's numbers, he was one of the worst prime ministers we ever had in our history. So, you know, the rhetoric and the facts generally are quite different. There's a lot of things that they did. I believe, which were, were very good. But the reality is, I think that he can do a lot more. I mean, we've been pushing this government from the beginning for a national auto strategy. Um, it's pretty tough uh, when you don't have a strategy, I will argue, 
for Canada's second biggest export. If I take a look at the pandemic today, what has the government done for the airline industry? Nothing. I mean, ultimately, there has to be a plan uh, to stabilize the Air Canada's, the West Jets, the Porters, because we are in big trouble here. And once you start to move out of the COVID crisis, people are going to have to get to where they need to be. And if you end up with bankrupt airlines like we saw years ago, uh, we're going to be in trouble. So this reluctance, I will argue, to really prop up some of the major employers in this country, I think is a, is a strategy that might bite us in the backside in the long term. Um, I think we need a more detailed plan on what we are going to do with the investing in infrastructure, because there's going to have to be a major investment in the economy when we get through this to get people back to work. So there's been a lot of good things, but I think there's more dialogue required in certain other areas as well. And when we look at an auto strategy, for example, obviously auto considerations played a a significant role and I'm sure you were very active and, and vocal in the course of renegotiating NAFTA. But when we when we look forward, we now see Biden, who hopefully will be successful in November, but we see Biden speak about the p- potential of investing trillions of dollars in green infrastructure, including electric vehicle charging yep. infrastructure across the country. Yep. And we haven't seen that same level of ambition here in Canada. But Ensuring that we are supporting our auto sector, but also meeting our climate emission objectives would be, I think, a very useful overall strategy. Is, is that where you and your union have been pushing to, to say, OK, here you say you care about climate. You, you say you care about labor. Well, here's yeah. a policy that can get both done. Right now, the global market is about three percent electric vehicles. It will be heading up to about 50 percent by the year 2040. So you're, you better start moving now. Because you're right. If you look at infrastructure, very few stations, gas stations, are capable right now um, of dealing with electric vehicles. Uh, government should have in place incentives to put charging stations in homes. But ultimately, this is also about finding a mechanism to build electric vehicles here in Canada. Thank you. Because the auto industry here in Canada, we don't have any electric vehicles. So government subsidizing jobs in other countries there's a bit of a tricky balancing act as well. So if I look at the auto industry and mass transit specialty vehicles, we are getting hammered here in this country as a lack of a strategy. Look at the auto industry. There's no longer Ford and Talbotville, the GM plant in St. Therese, the Bromont Hyundai facilities. If I take a look at the amount of assembly plants, we had let row truck plants gone. Uh, We can walk right through the level of auto manufacturing in this country that has gone, some of it during peak periods. Take a look at Navistar, Thomas Bus, Freightliner. If you take a look at what's going on in Thunder Bay right now, the old can car facilities. Take a look at what's going on in Winnipeg with New Flyer. So look, there are numerous opportunities, but the OEMs, the major auto companies globally, have announced over $300 billion of investments in electric vehicles. You know how much in here in Canada? How much? Uh, none. None. Wow. Zero. Wow. So if the government talks about a green strategy and talks about, you know, greening our industry in order to deal with the changing consumer demands and meeting our climate change initiatives, well, then you better start talking to people. And you better start putting your money where your mouth is. There's one thing about GM saying, look, we're good. We invested all this money in the tech center in Markham. We're going to put into place a test track to deal with autonomous and electric vehicles. Well, that's nice. We'll build a damn car. 
that you can test on the track. So, you know, you can't have a deal where we're going to open a tech center and hire a thousand engineers and then get rid of thousands and thousands of direct employees and many, many more indirect jobs that are tied into the assembly plant. You can't hire 1,000 and get rid of 30,000 Canadian jobs and say somehow that's a good deal for Canadians. Only a fool would buy that. I received a lot of constituent correspondence, even though it's well outside of Beaches East York, about the GM plant in Oshawa and a push to retool that plant for yep. electric vehicles. And yep. my staff were saying, look, if whatever company is able to build it, give them the plant to build the vehicles. Let's get yep. electric vehicles built there. Is that is that something you were pushing for? Or did you have a particular objective other than just getting manufacturing back into that into that facility? Look, there's no question. The The deal that we did with GM in 2019, after they announced the closure in November 2018, uh, was to transition the plant in the short term or in the long term as well to building aftermarket parts. So, for example, when you discontinue a model for 10 years, you have to build door panels, hoods, trunks, lift gates, you know, all of that, doors, everything. So for 10 years. So we want that to become GN's center of excellence because we know with every discontinued model, there's 10 years worth of work. So that is a solid business model. But over and above that, a part of the deal with General Motors was maintaining the integrity of the plant, which means the paint shop, paint shop is still intact. There's a line still there. So the ability is still there to build vehicles. So we're in bargaining right now with the Detroit 3. We have contract expiry dates of the middle of September. So we'll we be talking about product, not just with GM, Ford, and Chrysler as well, all of them. Uh, because, look, you got to talk about the future in order to have a stable present. And so that's what we're doing today. My last question for you is about Unifor specifically. Unifor came to being in 2013 and you took it over as a union representing 300,000 workers, I think, which is a, an incredible number of Canadians. And when you look back over the last seven years, have you seen obviously continued challenges, but are there things you point to to say it's really important that our voice was at the table and going forward, do you have a sense of what you're out to accomplish? Well, first of all, I'm proud that Unifor was at the bargaining table with the renegotiation of NAFTA. I think it's probably the first time globally that a union had such a, a role in shaping the deal. So much of our fingerprints are all over it as it relates to rules of origin, uh, the deal made on the auto industry. A lot of the discussions on the labor standards in Mexico have our fingerprints all over. A lot of it is our language. That wouldn't have happened, I would argue, unless we created this new union that was relevant. Look, we don't have mixed emotions. Uh, if you listen to a lot of the different labor leaders across the country, they'll talk about belonging to international unions, but the reality is they belong to U.S.-based unions. A lot of the labor leaders in this country that belong to U.S. unions are paid in U.S. funds. Their pensions are U.S. funds. So I will argue that their loyalty is to their U.S. headquarters. They will argue and say otherwise, but the reality is none of them like to rock the boat. Um, I'm not into the democracy of the labor movement here in Canada being controlled by the United States. And that's why I'm at odds frequently with so many international U.S.-based unions, uh, because I don't believe our politics should be dictated by Washington, Pittsburgh, or New York. Uh, so we are created to fight for Canadian workers, and we're doing that. I'm proud of Unifor's role in politics, how we mess it up federally and uh, provincially. We are a very active role. 
But also, we have a lot of strength as it relates to collective bargaining. We've got the resources, major, major fights with employers. So I'm proud of what we do at the bargaining table. I'm proud of how we represent our members, but I'm proud of, of the role we play in the political arena. People know who we are. Governments understand who we are. Uh, they frequently, whether they like us or not, they listen to us. And that happens as a result of having some, frankly, uh, collective strength as an organization. So I'm proud of what we've been able to accomplish, but there's much more to do. I'm glad you were a part of the NAFTA renegotiations as well, because we did see labor play a more significant role in that trade deal than in past trade deals, certainly. And I would also say when you see the growth, continued growth of precarious work, and we see the just sheer brazenness of CEOs from the grocery stores in the course of this recent hearing, all the more important that we've got strong unions going forward to, to protect workers' rights and ensure that we don't lose more of those rights going forward. So, Jerry, I appreciate your time. And if there are other issues that you think our industry committee ought to take up in the future, definitely be in touch. I will let you know what's on my mind. And by the way, I appreciate you finding time today. Thanks, Jerry. Thank you very much, Nathaniel. Take care. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Uncommons. Remember to subscribe at uncommons.ca for future episodes and recommend future guests and topics on social media at BYNA.